Okay, good morning, everybody. Good morning, CBF. Um, um, so, um, yeah, so we have, uh, you know, as, as, we, uh, as we continue in our series here, we've come to uh, sort of an important inflection point, uh, I guess you could say, and Charles, uh, Charlie uh, talked about this last week, where we have completed the study of the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, we started this, um, this study exactly, um, I guess, nine months ago uh, on, uh, on uh, the very first Sunday of, uh, of uh, 2021. And uh, we have taken, uh, you know, what I would call a bird's eye view. But we started off, as you recall, at the very beginning, the first two weeks, um, you know, we, uh, I, I spoke those first two weeks and we, we looked at a, a sort of a very high level uh, view of, uh, of the Old Testament, uh, scripture as a whole, and then the Old Testament. And, um, and then we proceeded to, to go into specific lessons uh, over time. And we have covered everything from creation up through the, uh, the exile and the return from the exile. We've looked at the history, we've looked at the prophets, we've looked at the law. And I think we've had, uh, you know, a fairly uh, a good um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, overview or a good understanding of how all of these things connect together. And now we are, we finished with that and we're about to move into the New Testament. So what we're going to do uh, this week and next week is I'm going to take a little bit of time to sort of do what we did at the beginning of the year. Uh, but this time focused on uh, on the New Testament, do sort of a very high level overview of the New Testament in a similar pattern. Uh, and then, uh, you know, two weeks from now, we'll start with more deep dives into specific messages, uh, you know, on, on specific topics or specific areas uh, of the New Testament scriptures. So, uh, so with that, you know, I want to uh, just re-emphasize a couple of things. And, and the first one is, is just to remind everybody of why we are doing this, right? It's because the scripture is so important in the life of a believer. This is this is the word of God. It is the counsel of God, uh, the whole counsel of God given to us. And it tells us here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, you know, it is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I do hope that as we have gone through this um, series, that it has whetted your appetite to delve deeper, that it's given you a little better understanding of the whole scripture and how, uh, you know, all these pieces are connected, that it's actually one story from, from Genesis through Revelation. Uh, and it's, it's God's unfolding plan of redemption and God's plan for all of history that's that culminates in you know, uh, one part of it culminates in uh, in the um, in the crucifixion of Christ, which we'll get to in a couple of months here. Uh, but then from that onwards, it's about you know culminating in the return of Christ and the establishing uh, of His kingdom. And um, and I do hope that as we have done this, that you have been encouraged to go and dig deeper, and and your understanding of these different parts of Scripture has improved as a result of the study, and it's and it's been profitable for you. Uh, to learn some doctrines, to get some proof or correction, to to get some instruction, and uh, and that you have become much more complete, much more knowledgeable, much more equipped to do the good work for which you know, Ephesians two tells us that we have been we have been redeemed, that we have been saved unto good works, to do good works, not by good works. Uh, salvation is through by grace through faith. Uh, you know, it is a gift of God, so that we may have nothing to boast, but we have been saved unto or to do good works. And then, um, you know, I'll just do a quick, very quick summary. So we, you know, we're going to do this in the New Testament as well, but going back, you know, we split the scriptures into three sections, the Old Testament scriptures into three sections. We have the foundational, which is the first five books of Moses, which gives us the foundational truths, everything from, you know, how did the world begin? Uh, truths about the fall, truths about the call of Abraham and the, the, the creation of this people, the people of God, the nation of Israel and their uh, slavery and then their redemption from Egypt and then the law that was given to them, the Mosaic covenant that was made that if they obeyed the commandments of God, they would be blessed. And if they disobeyed, they would, uh, they would face judgment. And then in the historical books, all the way from Joshua to Esther, we saw how 
these people, the people of Israel, try to live out those foundational truths in their day-to-day life. And throughout that 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 period, we find that uh, you know there was an area, there was a there was a period where which we call the pre-Kings era, which was a time of the judges. Um, and uh, you know Joshua uh, brought them into the promised land, and then um, uh, the judges ruled, and <coughs> the people went through the cycle of of disobedience and rebellion, and then God would save them. And then eventually they went into this period of where they had kings. You know, Samuel was a bridge to that period. And then you had Saul and then David and then Solomon. And then they divided up uh, into the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And then eventually because of their, uh, because of their disobedience to the command, because they broke all of those conditions of the Mosaic covenant, God had to judge them. And he first judged the Northern Kingdom of Israel and send them off uh, you know, he judged them through the nation of Assyria, who scattered them throughout the world, and they never really returned, other than in in pockets or as individuals. But as a people, they never returned to the promised land. Then you have the the the, the kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, the Davidic kingdom, the the heirs of David, um, who also went into judgment. And this was through Babylon. Babylon came and took them into their land. And but here, because this was the promised line of the Messiah, you know, God did. Uh, facilitate a return. And that's what we've seen the last, just the last three or four weeks, you know, through the work of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah in those books, we see the history of that. And then of course, you know, uh, as they live this history and as they struggle to implement and live by these foundational truths at the top there, we find that God giving them through his word instructions. And those are the 22 instructional books. We broke that out into the poetic five books and the prophetic 17 books. And we saw how the prophets were, some of them spoke to Israel, some of them spoke to the southern kingdom of Judah, some of them were before the exile, some of them were during the exile. And then the last few weeks, we've looked at Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, who were prophets that were after the exile. And having this knowledge, I hope it helps each of us as we study into it, as we look at these prophets you know, to understand where they fit in history, to understand who were the kings during that time, to connect it back to what's going on in the book of Kings. And I hope that will help us to really glean more truths and glean more applications uh, as we go through that. So that's sort of a quick uh, four or five minute summary of what we've done uh, in the last um, uh, seven months, uh, eight months, I suppose. And I would encourage each of you, you know, if you haven't been through these series, all the recordings are there on, uh, on on YouTube in our CBF Calvary Bible Fellowship YouTube channel, please go listen to them. Okay, I think I think uh, this is a great way for you to study the whole Scripture. And as we before we move on, I just want to remind us again, you know what I said earlier, right? The Bible, yes, it's sixty six books. It's uh, written by forty authors of different nationalities, backgrounds, social standings. It's written over one thousand five hundred years, and yet, uh, you know, it's one story. It's the story. Uh, of history. It's a story of God. It's a story of redemption. It's a story uh, of uh, of the eternal ages. And, and this is really beautiful. As we looked at it, we've seen three threads running through the scriptures there, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a thread of the person of Christ. We see the first mention of Christ, a veiled mention of Christ in Genesis 3 when the fall happens. And then we've seen glimpses of him in the history of Israel and in the prophets. We looked, We saw we had a lesson, um, uh, a message on the suffering servant in Isaiah. Uh, we've seen the thread of the plan of redemption all the way from Genesis 3 at the fall where God promises a redeemer, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. We see it in the call of Abraham uh, out, of, out of the nations uh, to, to make a special people through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, the Abrahamic covenant. And then to the promise of, of that new covenant that we saw in Ezekiel, where God would change the hearts of the people. It wouldn't be about following the law, but it would be about transformation from the inside that would make them desire to obey God and become a new people of God. And so we see this plan of redemption being brought to fruition step by step by step. We see the the the, the, the Judah, the nation of Judah being preserved even through exile and brought back because that is that is the, the lineage from which the Messiah was to come. And then we see the thread of God's program for the ages. We see God making, um, moving not only among, uh, you know, within the children of Israel, but, uh, but through all the nations to fulfill his ultimate plan. We see how uh, his, his total control of all things, how he uses the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians to fulfill his plan and God is in control 
throughout. He's playing out. He's working out his program uh, for the ages. And then, um, you know, so as we as we move ahead today, we're going to come. We're going to go into the New Testament. But first, you know, there's this little period, right, which which is known as the intertestamental period. And uh, and this is a period of 400 years. So we're going to spend a little bit of time understanding that. And, uh, you know, these are called the 400 silent years. In fact, you know, unlike most messages today will be a little different, even though we read some passages, those passages were meant to just put into context where we are going. Uh, you know, the first passage was from Galatians chapter four, which talks about the fullness of time. And I'll come back to that later. And the other two passages were about the great commission, right? So we are going into the foundational truths of the gospel, going into the great commission, and then the formation of the church, uh, which, which, is the way through which just as, as God operated through Israel in the Old Testament, uh, today he operates uh, in the New Testament age, the age of grace through his church. And we're going to spend the next uh, six months or so looking at this, six or seven months, looking through this in more detail. <clears throat> but today, um, you know, we're going to start introducing it. But there is this period of time which is really not taught to us. We don't see much about it in scripture because it is, after all, the 400 silent years or, or known as the intertestamental period. So today we're not going to dwell a lot in terms of expositing scripture or, or dwelling on a particular passage. I'll refer to a few things here and there, but we're actually going to talk a little bit more about history. And it's very important for us to understand this period because, uh, first of all, it's a lengthy period and it's not that nothing was happening, although not much of it is recorded in scripture. Some of it was prophesied in scripture and some of the prophecies that we studied, such as the prophecy of Daniel. And then there's a lot happening during these 400 years to set the stage for what we read about starting in the book of Matthew in the New Testament, setting the stage for the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, setting the stage for the work of the Lord Jesus, for his uh, death on the cross, for the formation of the church. And it's really fascinating. Uh, it's not an area perhaps many of us study. In fact, I have not spent a whole lot of time in the past, and it's only... Uh, you know, because I had to speak on it that I delved into it. And, and certainly I'm not uh, an expert on this period. And there's much more that we could do. And I would encourage you to just go look it up. There's a lot of things out you can find on the Internet. Of course, I'll warn you, anytime you go to the Internet, just be careful uh, and check things out. But what I want to do today is just talk a little bit first about these 400 silent years and then uh, go into the introduction to the foundational uh, books of the New Testament. So what is the 400 silent years? So first of all, it's a 400-year period uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? And so therefore, between the Old and the New, it's called the intertestamental. Inter means in between, right? And this is a period of time that is called the silent years because the people of Judah, just to put it into historical context, had returned from exile. They had been resettled in the land. Uh, and, um, you know, we read about all those things happening in Ezra and Nehemiah and, and uh, Zeph and, um, um, you know, Malachi and, and all those prophecies. And during this time, it's called the 400 silent years because there were no prophets who spoke the word of God. So, so it was a silent time. The, the word of God sort of ceased, right? After the prophet Malachi, there were no prophets of that kind coming. The people were going on and there was a lot happening, which we look at uh, in a minute here. Um, and the first time that they finally, uh, after all that period, the, 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 the first time that they had sort of a resumption of the word of God coming to them was when John the Baptist appeared on the scene in the early parts of the New Testament period. Uh, and he started preaching his message of, you know, saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And you remember, as we read through the, the story of John the Baptist, we find that many people flocked to him, right? Many people flocked to him and he baptized you know, did the baptism of repentance for many people. And, and, and that sort of, uh, you know, zeal for, for or the, the hunger for what John had to say, it sort of makes a lot of sense when you think about the, the fact that people had gone 400 years, many, many generations, you know, three or four generations without hearing from God. And they were wondering if God had forgotten them. And all of a sudden, here comes this man, sort of, you know, a weird character, if anybody would call it weird today, it was John the Baptist. You know, he dressed in camel's hair and, and he was in the deserts and a wild man. And, and uh, you know, and he comes out saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, sort of echoing the themes of the prophets of old. And the people were perhaps overjoyed that perhaps God had broken his silence. Perhaps he was speaking again. And so they flocked to John. And, and there was even this hope that perhaps John was the Messiah. And remember, some of the disciples of 
of, of John came to Jesus and they said, asked his disciples saying, you know, tell us, are you the one, right? Or, or, or people are saying that John is the, is the Messiah. So there was this, this uh, whole dynamic going on there, which makes a whole lot of sense when we understand the context uh, of the 400 years. So, you know, there was this hunger of God, uh, uh, hunger for the word of God. And there was this yearning, you know, the political situation, they were under oppression of Rome. Uh, again, I'll look at that in a minute here. Uh, and, uh, and they were yearning for that Messiah, right? This is the Messiah that has been promised that was throughout the books of Moses. And, and there was always this hope that the Messiah, the son of David would come and he would remove this yoke of oppression that they were under. And, uh, and the, the fact is that as we look at it, and we'll see that uh, this morning as we go through the lesson here, that though God was silent, it was yet a dynamic period of political, cultural, and religious change, right? There was not that nothing was happening. A lot was happening. And I'll give you a little glimpse of that. We can't get too much into the details here, but, but we'll give you a little glimpse of what was going on uh, at that time. Um, and, uh, and it's important, as I said, to understand this so that we really have a context in our minds as we go into the New Testament. So God was still at work. You know, God is in one of the lessons that I want to communicate uh, during this, from this message today is, is for us to remember that even when it seems that God is silent, even when it seems that God is not there, that God has perhaps forgotten us, you know, God is still at work. And we're going to see that in these 400 years. He was at work in the politics of the time. He was in work, at work in the culture of that time. He was at work in the history of that time. And he was preparing the ground for the incarnation of his son into the world to, to, to move forward on the next step the next stage, the most important phase of that plan of redemption that we see throughout scripture. So, um, you know, what we want to do is we want to look at three things. Okay, I want to look at, first of all, the rulers. So what was the political situation as uh, like? And then we want to look at some of the literature and, uh, and then finally uh, at uh, uh, the, the religious aspects and then the groups of people. And all of these are important for us to understand, as I said, the context as we go into the New Testament, we'll talk about groups of people that we see throughout the Gospels, and this will help us understand that a little better. So first of all, the rulers. So as we look at the history here, we find that, that there were uh, four empires that ruled, right? We start off during this period, which starts off in, uh, in around, uh, you know, roughly around 400 BC, 400 years before Christ, uh, you know, in terms of the, the, the dating methodology there. And we have the the nation of Persia, right? So remember, Persia is, you know, Darius, they came and, uh, you know, Darius and, and, and all those kings, um, Artaxerxes and, you know, the, the kings at the time of Esther, story of Esther and all those things, right, Cyrus. Uh, so the Persians, you know, the Babylonians had taken the children of Israel captive into, um, into, uh, um, into Babylon. They had settled them there uh, and they had been there for many, many years. And of course, many of them had, had, uh, you know, had become more acclimated to the society there. They had been taught the things of Babylonians, as we know from the story of Daniel and his friends. Um, and, uh, but eventually Babylon, remember in Daniel, you know, there was the hand uh, that said, that wrote the message and Daniel interpreted it. And, and that very night we read the, that the Persians came, the Medo-Persians, uh, and they, you know, they defeated the Babylonians, right? And then God gave the Israelites, the Jews, favor in the sight of the Persian kings, and they started, uh, you know, allowing them to follow. So, uh, and then we'll come back to that. The next empire that came into place was Greece, which ruled for about 160 years from 331 to 164. And that was followed by uh, an independent kingdom where the Jews ruled themselves for about a long period of 100 years uh, in a kingdom that's known as the Hasmonean kingdom. We'll talk more about that. And then finally, in 63 BC, um, you know, we see Rome, right? Rome comes and Rome the Roman Empire sort of fills the world. Uh, and from 63 BC to about 135 AD, and you can see that period of time is when all of these events happen, right? Everything from, you know, the incarnation of Christ, the birth of Christ, to the ministry of Christ, the death of Christ, the formation of the church, the writing of the, of the New Testament books, all of that happens in this period when Rome uh, is the empire that's in rule. And by the way, all of these things are in your outline notes. You can take notes, I pretty much, uh, the notes that, uh, the outline that's been given to you, uh, the sermon notes are pretty much aligned with what I'll be presenting here. So it should be easy for you to take notes. So let's, what I want to do now is just take a look at each of these, uh, these kingdoms, the Persian, the Grecian, 
the Hasmonean and the Roman, and, and talk about a few things that happened, right? What are some of the key things that happened in this time? So, as I said, you know, the, um, uh, the, um, um, uh, the, uh, the, the Persians allowed the Jewish people to return to their homeland. And we saw in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, they allowed them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that's the, the, it was a start of what they call the second temple period. The first temple was the temple built by Solomon. Uh, and then they had the second temple built under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and they restored the worship and people came to them. But we know that the people, you know, as we look at those prophecies that we looked at last week, you know, the prophecies of Malachi in particular and, um, you know, and, and Zechariah and all these, that, that, that the people, you know, were still, even though they had been, uh, you know, they had been brought back from exile, even though they had restored uh, the, the temple worship and their way of life in the land, uh, you know, yet there was a lot of backsliding, right? They were still the same people, you know, not much change. They were still uh, sinful. They still went back. They still, you know, took care of themselves instead of, you know, and God tells them, you know, how can you be dwelling in paneled houses while my uh, my house is in ruins? And, and God had a lot of things to say to them. He, Micah he talks about their uh, divorce and all of these kind of things that were going on in the society of the time. And, and Charlie talked about all of these uh, last week. So, so the Persian kings were somewhat supportive uh, of the Jewish people, gave them some independence. But then towards the end, they started falling apart. They also started changing their tune. And so what we find in history is that we get a new kingdom, okay, led by this person that we've all learned about in history uh, called Alexander the Great. Like Alexander the Great comes out of Macedonia from Europe and he, and he goes east and he goes all the way, as we know from history, he comes all the way to the border of, of, of India and the northern part, and then he dies, right? And then his kingdom is broken up between four of his generals. I'm not going to go into all that. You can go and Google the history if you're interested. Uh, but what were some of the key happenings there? So what we find is that is that the Greeks initially, you know, Greeks, they capture the place, the different parts of the uh, of the world and add them into the empire, but they give them a measure of self rule, right? And in fact, they even create certain, certain uh, bodies to run the civic affairs of that area. So in the New Testament, in, in the Gospels, we hear about this thing called the Sanhedrin, right? Jesus was judged before the Sanhedrin, made up of the high priest and scribes and all these other, other people, right? The Sadducees and so on. So that was a body created to say, you know what? You know, yes, we are the, you know, the rulers here, but, but, but we don't understand all of your, you know, we Greeks don't understand all of your Jewish culture and your laws. And we'll create this body called the Sanhedrin to manage the civil affairs. Uh, of the um, uh, of the uh, uh, of the of the Jewish uh, you know Jewish people, and then they also create educational philosophical systems. And you know the Greeks were known for philosophy, right? When we go to the Book of Acts, we talked about talk about Paul, uh, you know, on Mars Hill, and and how there were people there who used to come, and they just enjoyed just doing nothing other than sitting around all day talking about new concepts, new philosophies, and, and you know we've all studied about the philosophers like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and, and all of these people. And, and so they were very much into philosophy, right? But they were also very pantheistic. And so, uh, of course, when an empire takes hold, you know, uh, eventually their thinking and their culture starts permeating, right? So we find that during this period of roughly 160 years that Greece is in control of Palestine, the region of Palestine, the Jewish nation there, you know, slowly, People start going away, uh, you know, from the law. They start going away from from the, the the biblical or the Old Testament understanding of God, right? So, so from that monotheistic um, idea of God, uh, we see a lot of polytheism coming in, you know, because the Greeks had many gods. They had gods for 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 everything. In fact, in that way, they're very similar to uh, the culture that we live in here in this country. Uh, and then they introduced one more thing. They did was introduced a common language, and this is very very important. Okay, so what? Why is it important? I put it in red because you know. Remember what I said that even as these during these silent years, God was preparing the way, right? And the common language is, of, of course, the Greek language. And so all the way from you know Europe through Asia Minor, through the Middle East, the, the you know West Asia, uh, and on to the east, there you know we find a common language for the first time in history, perhaps you know after the Tower of Babel. Uh, we find that there's a common language, much like we have, you know, English, 
know, because of the British Empire, English has become sort of a common language, right? Uh, throughout the world, a language of commerce, a language of, uh, you know, that, that everybody sort of communicates. In most countries, they have both English and the local language as a, as a common language, as we do in our country. And so Greek uh, became a common language. And this was very important uh, because uh, later it became very important to, to, first of all, having the scriptures in a language that was understandable to people uh, across much of the, the, the civilized world at the time. Uh, in fact, the Hebrew scriptures, we'll see that in a minute, were translated into Greek during this period. And, um, you know, uh, and uh, uh, the, um, um, you know, and with this common language, you know, the, all of the New Testament was written in Greek. Uh, and, and so God was in a way preparing the, the, the ground, you know, for the spread of the scripture, right? If, if, if the scriptures had to be translated into all these, like today we do it, okay, because we have the means to do it, but they didn't back in those days, right? And, and so, this introduction of a common language of Greek was very important. But then what happens is over time, uh, you know, the Greeks became more ruthless. They began persecuting the Jews. In fact, one of their emperors in 167 BC, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he, he attacks the, the promised land, the, the Jerusalem, and he destroys Jerusalem and he desecrates the temple. In fact, he sacrificed a pig and, you know, a pig is, a, is you know, the most unclean of animals on the altar and, and just cleans out the temple completely. And, and this was actually prophesied in Daniel 11. If you go back to Daniel 11, we're not going to go there today, uh, but um, you know, it talks about the abomination of desolation, right? He would come and, and what he would do there. And there was this huge persecution. So what happens as this persecution occurs and, the per and, and, and uh, all of those attacks from Antiochus was, was precipitated by a bit of a rebellion that started coming out within the Jewish people. So there were these people who, who came up, the, the, the Jewish people who, who wanted to take back, who were under the oppression of Greece. And, uh, and so they, they end up uh, launching a rebellion okay, called the Maccabean Rebellion. Maybe you've heard about it, a character called Judas Maccabeus and a priest called Mattathias. Uh, you know, I can't get into a lot of detail here, but they lead a revolt against the Greek rulers. So you see, there's a lot going on. It's silent from the perspective of God speaking, but there's a lot going on. The Maccabees lead a revolt. And uh, by then, you know, the Greek empire had, had, had uh, you know, disintegrated or had fragmented after Alexander died into four different kingdoms, his four generals, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and, and, and so on. Um, you know, so in Egypt and Syria and all these regions had been split up and there was a lot of infighting and they sort of start weakening. And then the Maccabeans lead this revolt and uh, they recapture Jerusalem in 164 BC, right? They rededicate the temple. And this event is even today to this day in the Jewish culture celebrated as the Feast of Hanukkah. Okay, so you know, we have all the feasts in the Old Testament, the Passover and the Feast of Harvest and, and uh, you know, the tabernacles and all these kind of things. But the Feast of Hanukkah, which they celebrate today was not given as part of the law. It was it's a commemoration of, of the Maccabee, Maccabean revolt where they go and, recapture Jerusalem from the Greeks. Uh, they drive the Greeks out and they, uh, they, they cleanse the temple and they, re, they re, revive the, the, uh, the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system there in the kingdom. And then they go on to establish this Hasmonean dynasty, which rules for roughly a hundred years. And, uh, and so what happens during this time is that hope begins to return, right? The Jews are ruling themselves as, oh, maybe now, you know, we don't have the yoke of oppression. Uh, and, and they start restoring some of these important points, such as the belief in one God uh, and uh, sort of this hope of maybe now the Messiah will come. Right. Uh, but of course, you know, this did not last for very long because what happens is there are two brothers uh, in the Hasmonean kingdom who get into a fight uh, over who is the real ruler to succeed, uh, you know, in the Hasmonean kingdom. And, uh, and they sort of come up with this idea, it turns out to be a bad idea. To invite the Romans had been slowly building out their empire during this time, you know, replacing the, the Grecian empire. And, um, and they invite Rome to come and resolve this dispute. Well, Rome comes and says, great, we'll help you resolve the dispute. The only problem is they do it by basically taking over, right? And Rome brings peace to the land. Okay, Rome, uh, you know, you've heard the term Pax Romana. So there was peace over all the world because they ruled with an iron fist, okay, the iron fist of, of Rome. 
But Rome also does some very important things that were very useful. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, after this this infighting, um, you know, they introduce peace in the land, and they they build a, a, a network of roads and systems. They were system people. They were very organized, right? And I've put this out in red. Uh, on the on the on the slide here again, just like the common language, this was very important. If you go Google up, you know, Roman road network, you can see what that looks like, right? And there are they have these sort of you know little hubs of cities, small towns, and they were all linked all the way from uh, Judea and Samaria all the way up into Asia Minor and then into Europe and all the way down to Rome. They were linked by this network of roads. And why is this important? Because this became important for the later spread of the gospel after the church was formed. You know, Paul and his companions, Luke and Silas and Barnabas and all these people, they walked down these roads. They traveled on these roads to spread the gospel. And you, so you see, these, this was something that didn't exist with the Greeks. It didn't exist with the Persians. And this was something that Rome put into place and it facilitated the spread of the church down the road. So again, we see how, you know, through the language, through this road, God was preparing the ground. And at the right time, he sent his son into the world and he formed his church. And we'll, we'll uh, look at that a little more. So, uh, you know, as we keep moving on, you know, beyond the rulers, we also have uh, what I call the readings, the religion and the people. Okay, So let's just look at that. Readings, I mean, just the literature. So there were these uh, uh, four different kinds of, uh, of literature, right? And you can note this down. The first is the Apocrypha. So literature is important because it gives you an idea into the culture. So the Apocrypha was never seen as scripture. It's a little controversial. You know, the Catholics have it as part of their Bible. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but it gives good insight into the history and culture of the time. It was never accepted as scripture. And then you have something else, a little more complicated, called the Pseudepigrapha. Okay, Pseudepigrapha, which was 60 writings that, again, give insight into the history and culture of the time. Right. And then um, there was another set of writings called the Dead Sea Scrolls, which some of these were scriptures. So what we had was a, a group of people called the Essenes uh, who separated out from the rest of the Jewish culture that was compromising with Greece and Rome. And they went away, um, you know, and they lived in the caves. Uh, and then they wrote down some of these writings. Some of them were actually. Uh, so if you normally when we think of Dead Sea Scrolls, we think about the biblical scrolls of the prophet Isaiah. And these have helped us to really understand and trace back the origins of, of the scriptures and have better translations and, and, and such. Uh, but there were a lot of non-scriptural readings as well. And it gives you an insight into uh, the life of these people. And then finally, the fourth book was actually scripture. That was the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Remember what I told you about the Greek language? So this was very important in, in the spread of the gospel because, see, all these Jews had been scattered you know, during the Assyrian uh, invasion and then during the Babylonian, they had spread out. Some have, from Judah had come back, but there were still people all over the uh, the known world. And with the empires coming in, they had moved out. They had you know run away from persecution, and and they had lost the knowledge of the Hebrew language, right? And so the Greek scriptures became very important in the spread of the gospel. So that's why you see in the gospels it harkens back to the uh, the the scriptures, and so the the Jews who were spread out. You know, could understand this. Even the Gentiles could could read the scriptures because you know uh, when the when the uh, apostles were out evangelizing, they would point back to these Old Testament scriptures. So the Septuagint was very important from that perspective. So these are the literatures, and then when we come to the the uh, the religion, right? Um, so there were two groups of people. There are two sort of segments when you look at it uh, at at the at the society of that time during these four hundred years. One was a temple group. Okay, so these are groups of people who focus on the ceremonial aspects of the Jewish religion. Okay, uh, and much of the ceremony they just sort of did it as vote. Okay, um, it lost their meaning over time. It was it became more of a cultural, you know, thing that they did because they were Jews, uh, and the spiritual significance of it had gone away. But these were people. They were sort of the elite of society. They followed all the ceremonial aspects, but they didn't really care much about the underlying meaning or living the life. Um, you know, in many ways, they even compromised with the, with the empires they were under, whether it was the Greeks or the Romans. And then there was another group, uh, which is, you know, we can term them as the synagogue group, right? So you had the temple in Jerusalem, and then you had synagogues in different cities. As you hear about Jesus, he went to the synagogue in Capernaum or the synagogue 
Nazareth or all these places. And these were groups of people, they're sort of grassroots, they're not the elite, right? And they focused on Judaism as a way of life and a way of community. So it's, uh, they were very focused on the traditions, right? following the traditions. Um, and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, you know, in many ways, you can, you can look at the church today, and I was trying to relate this to the church. You know, if you look at the church today, we have sort of church groups that are very ceremonial, right? They, they follow all the ceremonies, whether it's for Christmas or Easter or, or the, the liturgy calendar and all these kind of things throughout the year. And then there are other communities, maybe such as us, who focus on the way of life. Now, the, the interesting thing about it is that, uh, is that um, both of these people, even the synagogue people, they are really gone away from the heart of the law, right? And, and, and uh, in fact, uh, the, the focus among these people, we'll see that in a minute here, was more around the traditions and keeping the traditions and, and they had translated the laws into all these thousands of rules. Their rabbis had done it. Uh, and that's what they focused on, right? And we see some of that in how Jesus interacts with them, but we'll, we'll come back to that. And so let's also look at the last uh, item here, which is the, the people groupings, right? So when you look at the people, there are so many different groups of people. And uh, the first one we have is the is the uh, the Sadducees. So we see the Sadducees who are the leaders of the temple-oriented group. We find them, Jesus talks about them. You know, uh, they did not believe in the resurrection. They were opposed to the Pharisees. Uh, and if you go to Acts chapter 4, verse 1, I don't have time to look at it, but Acts 5.17, you see that the Sadducees and the uh, the leaders of the temple, they were sort of one and the same, right? These were the elite people. So they were the leaders of that temple group that I talked about from a religious perspective. And then we had the, the Pharisees, okay? So the Pharisees were the leaders of the synagogue group. So they were the grassroots leaders, you know, in the community, right? And, um, you know, we see Jesus so many times saying, woe unto you, uh, you know, scribes and Pharisees. We'll talk about the scribes in a second, but there's a lot of woes that Jesus throws their way, right? Because they were outwardly focused on keeping the law and the traditions, but inwardly, you know, their heart was not in the right place. They had completely gone away from it. And that's why when we look at things like the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus says, you know, you have heard it said, you know, X, Y, Z, but I say unto you, right? You have heard it said that, that if you commit adultery, that if you, um, you know, that adultery is sin. But I say unto you that if you look on a woman uh, with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart, right? Jesus is trying to correct this and, and he, he pronounces a lot of woes against them, right? And then you have the Sanhedrin, which we talked about. So these were mostly the, the, the Sadducee type people, the, the temple leaders. Uh, they ruled over the civil matters. They were appointed by the Greeks and the Romans. And we see how, you know, when we come into the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, how there was this, uh, this question of whether he should be judged by the Sanhedrin or by the Roman governor, right? And they send him first there and then they send him to Pilate and all this is what this sort of explains some of the context behind that. Then we got these scribes. They were more committed to the tradition, right? So so, so Jesus says, you know, um, in Matthew 23, 23, he says, woe unto the scribes and Pharisees, you know, and how their traditions uh, are not worth anything, right? Uh, because their heart is not in the right place. Then you have the people who used to... Uh, connect themselves closely with the Roman aristocracy, the Herodians. And, uh, and they were Jews that, that wanted to be more like Romans. They wanted to appease the Romans. And then you have the publicans, okay? Uh, in the scriptures, it refers to them as tax collectors. I don't have time to look at the scriptures, but you can note some, if you look at Matthew 5, 46 and Matthew 9, 11, you know, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and, and the scribes. And he says that what you're doing is worse than the publicans. So the publicans was like the standard the lowest standard of comparison, right? You couldn't get any worse than these people. Uh, and, and the Romans used them because they didn't want to be the bad guys. They didn't want to be the ones going and collecting all the taxes. So they got these publicans to go and become the tax collectors. And, you know, Matthew, right? He was a tax collector. Uh, and and, and, and uh, the, 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 the Pharisees came and accused, uh, they talked to Jesus' disciples and they accused Jesus of, of uh, you know, eating with the publicans and the sinners, right? Um, so, so that's who they were. And I'm going through all this so that you have a get an understanding of who these people are, so that when we get into the New Testament, you know some of this and how the way that Jesus talks. You know, you wonder why was Jesus have so much, um, you know, animosity towards the publicans and the sorry towards the scribes and the Pharisees. And now we sort of get a sense of that, right? And then there was these groups called the Zealots, who were nationalist, religious radicals, and they were like the terrorists of the times. The uh, you know, I, I guess you could call them the Taliban 
of the times. They're the religious radicals, and they all they want to do was overthrow Rome, right? And it's interesting that when you look in Matthew 10, 4, when Jesus names his disciples, one of them was a man called Simon the Zealot, right? So Jesus took his disciples from the fishermen and the zealots and Matthew, the tax collector or the publican, and Jesus was trying to show something to the people of that time, you know, and that's why, you know, it was, it would be a shocking thing for, for the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees to see Jesus have these guys walking with him, his core group being, you know, people made up of publicans and zealots and, and, and all these kind of sort of the, the, the riffraff of society, right. And the fishermen, uh, they were not the big shots. They were not the elite. Uh, and, uh, and understanding all these contexts really uh, help us to understand. So what was God doing during the 400 silent years. Really what he was doing as we look at all of these things was preparing the way, right? And in, um, uh, you know, in uh, Galatians 4, 4, we see when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And, and what a beautiful thought that is, you know, the fullness of time in God's time, he prepared the path. He brought all these kingdoms. He used these kingdoms to do what he wanted to do to fulfill his plan for, you know, hundreds of years later, whether it was bringing in the, the Greek language, whether it was building the road network, whether it was, um, you know, creating this environment where the people had a certain desire uh, for the Messiah. Uh, and, and even as the people might have been feeling, you know, that God was silent, that God had forgotten them, what happens, you know, all of a sudden into that environment comes John the Baptist. And right behind that comes the Lord Jesus Christ born as a babe in the manger. So God's timing is so perfect. You know, it's, it's something that, that we need to appreciate as we learn, as we go through scripture and something we can apply to our life in this day. So that's the 400 silent years. So I want to quickly uh, move past that and go into uh, the quick introduction in about 10 minutes or so, if I can do that, uh, of the New Testament. So again, we're going to break it up into these three um, you know, three groupings, the foundational books, the historical books, and the instruction. And the way they sort of relate to each other is the exact same thing, right? The foundational books is the foundation, gives the, the truths, right? And the historical is how the church, in this case, lives out those truths. And the instructional are as they live out, they run into all kinds of problems and they need some, some direction and instruction and, and, and solutions uh, and encouragement. And the instructional books, the epistles, you know, they provide that instruction into the history. Now, one, one important point uh, I want to make is that, you know, the foundational books, this period, you know, the, the Old Testament period from, you know, we don't know exactly when creation happened, but, but from the call of Abraham through, you know, Malachi is roughly around 1,500 years. It's a long period of time, right? Whereas the, the New Testament covers, uh, uh, you know, the New Testament itself, the books were written from about 50 AD to maybe 110 AD. You don't have to be dogmatic on those exact dates. There's a lot of, you know, different uh, views on that among scholars, but roughly in that period of time, right? And it covers the time frame from, you know, roughly maybe uh, uh, four or five BC all the way through about, you know, roughly uh, till the period of about uh, about 100, uh, 120 AD or so. Um, so they, uh, you know, the, the book of, uh, you know, the four books of the gospels, we look at that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they form the foundational truth. That is the gospel, right? The New Testament covenant is built on the gospel. The New Testament church is built on the foundation of the gospel. And then the historical, we only have one book here. We have 12 books in the Old Testament, and that's the Acts of the Apostles. And, and the interesting thing is that this is not a, a complete story, right? Because this, this is a, the story of the church is a continuing story. It's continued for about the last, you know, 2,000 years, right? 2,020-odd years. Uh, and this book of Acts only covers up till about AD 70, okay, or AD 60, you know, right before the, the, the temple, the second temple is destroyed, um, you know, by the Romans. Um, you know, you can go and read the history on that. Uh, but, but the history that we see in the book of Acts ends with Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. Uh, and then, you know, some of the history is contained in the epistles, uh, but we don't have a whole lot of history. That history has sort of been, been written you know, even now being written in our time. And then we have the epistles, you know, of Paul and the other uh, apostles uh, and the book of Revelation, which were, which we call the letters. These are instructional speaking into that history because we see that they have a lot of problems in the church, whether it was the speaking of tongues and the sign gifts in the, in the Corinthian church or the, 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 the problem of um, legalism in the Galatian church or or you name it, right? Uh, giving them instruction on how to live the Christian life 
all of those things are, are, are contained. Then I'll uh, you know, go a little deeper into the historical and the instructional next week. But today, you know, what I want to do is, is really focus for the next uh, you know, few minutes on the foundational books. So the foundational books you know, is, uh, is really the four gospels, right? And I just want to, uh, uh, just want to go to one, one verse which explains to us what the foundation is, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse 11, which tells us the foundation of the church. So if I, if I just quickly read that 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11 says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Um, we move a few pages over to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 20 says, Having been built on the foundation, uh, let me just go back to 19. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The household of God is, of course, the church. Having been, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He is the cornerstone of the foundation. He is the foundation. His teachings are the foundation. And that's why the gospels here form the foundation of the New Testament, the four gospels, you know, and, uh, you know, these are books about the good news. The word gospel means good news, the good news of the coming of Christ, the good news of the savior who has come to save mankind, the good news of this person who is going to live his life and then allow God the father to take him to a cross where he will die a humiliating and a, and a difficult death uh, of, of the story of a man, the good news of the man who will go to the grave only to be raised again and be raised again to defeat the great enemy of our souls, Satan and death, and, uh, and then give us this opportunity of eternal life. Isn't that an amazing thing? What an amazing story. What good news. And I just want to encourage anyone here today, listen to you. It doesn't matter what your background is. You could have grown in the Brethren churches. You could have heard this, uh, you know, all your life. But if you have not really, you know, uh, committed your life to that gospel message, if you have not committed your life to Christ, if you have not been saved from your sins, if you have not accepted the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and this good news on his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary as the only way for you to be made right with God, I would hope that, that somewhere along the way as we uh, go through this message today and we go through the coming weeks of looking deeper into these, into these gospels, that you realize just what good news it is and it's good news for each of you, it's good news for every man, woman and, and child in the world. And uh, you know, with that, let's just look at the, the four Gospels. So the question is, why do we have four Gospels, right? So we see that we have these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the reason we have them is because, you know, they're presenting different facets of the king. Okay, so we have Matthew who presents Christ as the promised king. It's all about the kingdom of the king. The Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom, right? And then we see that, um, um, you know, uh, Mark presents Christ as the servant or the suffering servant. Luke presents him as a man, his humanity, right? And then John presents him as God. And when you look at this, these four gospels, you see what an enigmatic person, what a unique person the Lord Jesus Christ is. He was a king at the same time he was a servant. He was God at the same time he was man. And it takes these four books, putting them together to really understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so, you know, let me just, I'm just going to present uh, a few aspects of this. You can, you can make notes in your, uh, in your outline there. Uh, you know, we're going to look at the focus, which we already looked at, the king, servant, man, and God. We're going to look at the author. We know who the author's names are, but what were they? The audience, the date, and the themes, right? So the first one is Matthew. Um, so when we look at Matthew, we find that Matthew was a publican. Okay, he was a tax collector. Um, and uh, the audience that he wrote to was, was Jewish. So Matthew is presenting Jesus as the promised king, the Messiah. It's all about the kingdom of the king. Um, it's all about, it's filled with Old Testament references and analogies. Uh, it connects Jesus as the promised Messiah, trying to convince his Jewish audience that Jesus is indeed the Messiah that they are hoping for. And so these are the themes of Messiah, the church. You know, he introduces the church uh, in uh, Matthew 16, 18, when he talks to Peter, he says, on this, on your truth, on your confession, you know, I will build my church. This is the first time we see the mention of the word church or ecclesia in the New Testament. So that concept is introduced. And of course, it's built out a little later in the New Testament. So that's the book of Matthew. Um, 
and and there's a theme of making disciples. You know, Jesus begins uh, in Matthew by calling disciples. He calls them. He says, you know, I will make you fishermen. He says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And he ends with that call, the, the great commission to go into all the world, to his disciples to go into all the world and make more disciples just like he has made them into disciples. And then we have the, the book of Mark. And in the book of Mark, you know, Mark was a missionary. Um, and he wrote primarily to a Roman audience. And he presents Jesus Christ as a servant, the suffering servant. You know, in Mark 10, 42 to 45, he says, the son of man came, you know, not to, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And throughout his, um, his, uh, his gospel here, you find this concept of the servant, uh, servant um, the suffering servant. And Mark is writing, Mark is a missionary. He has traveled throughout the, and you see it's written around 65 AD, and he's traveled throughout the Roman Empire with Paul, uh, and uh, he's writing to a primarily Roman audience. And the Romans had this concept of servanthood or servant leadership, uh, where, you know, even their military leaders were people who were men of action, right? We read about the centurions and uh, how they, they, they served, you know, served the, the, the Roman kingdom and gradually rose. And so they understood this and he's trying to explain to them that here is one who is all powerful and yet his power and authority comes from the fact that he, he, he has come to serve. He is a servant to many, right? He's going to serve by giving his life. So that's, uh, that's the book of Mark. And then, um, you know, the book of Luke uh, presents Jesus Christ as the man, the humanity of Christ. Uh, Christ is the perfect man. And Luke is a historian, a physician. This is the most detailed gospel. Okay, It's very chronological. It goes from the beginning to the end. It's the longest gospel. It, uh, it has um, uh, pretty much a lot of the detail, right? Luke being a historian, he records all of this detail that maybe some of the other gospels didn't quite, uh, you know, cover those things because it didn't fit into their uh, focus area, right? That we're seeing here on the top of the slide there. And his audience was Greek. So the Greeks looked for perfection in, in men. That's what their philosophy was all about, you know, becoming better men, better people. And Luke presents Jesus and he says, look at this man. He is the perfect man. So you see how because of the audience they were targeting, because of the, uh, the focus they had, because of their own backgrounds, each of them is presenting Christ in a, from a different facet. And then the themes are, of course, the humanity of Christ seeking and saving the lost. Uh, Luke 19.10 says the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So that's the gospel of Luke. And then finally, the gospel of Mark, which was written to a global audience. Sorry, John, written to a, gospel, a global audience. And John is what we call, the other three are called synoptic gospels. They present sort of a lot of details uh, built in time. Whereas John wrote it for, wrote his gospel. He mixes things in terms of sequence because he's trying to establish Christ as God, that the deity of Christ, that he is the son of God. And that's why he starts off his epistle, not with the birth of Jesus, but with you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And, and he talks about Jesus as God, right? John being a fisherman. Um, and he focuses a lot on the miracles. And again, it's not that the others don't. In fact, John has the fewest, he only lists about seven miracles, but he chooses. If you go, uh, if you go to this passage, John, where he says that Jesus, towards the end of John, where he says that there are many other miracles that Jesus did, but these have been chosen. These have been selected to show you that he is the son of God, right? So he picks these seven miracles that are, are very carefully picked and, and six of them actually don't even appear uh, in any of the other gospels, right? Which are meant to, and, it, and the, the final miracle there is, is of course the resurrection, but before this resurrection was the raising of Lazarus from the dead, where he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. So, so John has cherry-picked these miracles to make the point is in fact God. So these are the, this is sort of a, good, a quick 10 minute overview. Uh, you know, I cannot do justice to these gospels and the power of them. Of course, we're going to delve into them in the coming weeks. Uh, we have some, some 14 lessons, I think, on, on just the gospel portion, these foundational truths. But, but I, ho I hope you get a sense of what this is, what it presents, how the gospel is foundational through this. So, so what do we conclude here, right? So, uh, you know, I like this quote from uh, Dr. Bird Downs. I'll just read this you know, about these four gospels. Just if you think of a diamond, a diamond has facets. You hold the diamond up and you look at one side, uh, then you turn the diamond and you look at another way and it looks different. What Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are doing is they are 
looking at facets of the diamond. By virtue of doing that, we actually get a clearer picture of who this Christ, this Jesus who came, this one who is going to come and save his people. You know, this, these gospels are, are what the, uh, all of the Old Testament history is pointing towards, is building towards. And then flowing out of the gospel is, is the formation of the church and coming all the way out to our modern day, uh, you know, church that, that we are all blessed to be a part of. So God, so what is the conclusion? The conclusion is that God is constantly building his church. You know, God is constantly building his, his uh, building out his, his plan for the ages. He's shaping history and his events to align to his master plan for redemption, to his master plan of the program for the ages, even when it appears that he is silent or absent. You know, God is in complete control, whatever the circumstance you may be going through. You know, today we are going through COVID and we are going through, um, you know, all of these things uh, that, that, you know, Think about what's going on in Afghanistan. There's many other hotspots all over the world. And we think that God is not there, that he's silent. But you can be assured as you look at this history and we look at those 400 silent years and we look at how that was preparing the way for the, for the, for the gospel and for the, the work of Christ and then the formation of the church. Uh, you know, God's timing is not our time, right? Habakkuk 2, uh, two verse 3, he says that, 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 you know, the vision will be fulfilled, you know, uh, there is a time and that time will come. Be patient and wait for it, right? Though it tarry, it will not tarry. Um, God's timing is not our timing. And this, as we look at the past here, what, what is the relevance of that to us? And I'll just leave you with this thought. And, you know, is that as we look at the way God has worked through these 1,500 years, building up to the arrival of his son, building up to the sacrifice of his son, as we see how that perfect plan uh, was was put in place and brought to fruition amidst all the the, the sin of man, amidst all the uh, the disobedience, amidst all the uh, the the machinations of the different nations and the empires around it. Still, God's plan was on the march. God's um, you know uh, intentions were being fulfilled, and that should give us confidence and hope for the future. You know, if you have doubts about your faith, if you have doubts about your hope. If you can be confident that God is doing his work. You know, we sometimes wonder when is Christ going to return? It's been 2,000 years. Well, well look, at, look at the past. You know, look at those 400 silent years. God is, you know, in the fullness of time, he sent his son. When the time was right to fulfill his ultimate plan of redeeming a people to himself, preparing the way with the language, with the road networks. And, and, and through that, through all of those, that ground that was prepared, the gospel goes from Judea and Samaria into the uttermost parts of the world of the known world at the time and into our own country and into our forefathers and how blessed we are that God's plan is all, is not about little things here and there. It's not about a war here or a battle there. It's not about any of these things, but it is about redeeming our people, redeeming us to be his own people. We are so special in the eyes of God. And I hope that, that this sort of, you know, I've covered a lot, a lot of ground in a little bit of time that it will help you to see our place in this plan and how blessed we are and the fact that God is completely in control. So with that, I apologize. I've taken a little longer time, uh, but uh, but there is a lot to cover. We'll come back next week and finish up the, the, the historical and the um, the instructional parts of the New Testament before we move into the, uh, the, the individual lessons. Uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you, Father, that you are uh, sovereign God over all of history, over uh, over all of uh, the events that we see around us. And we thank you, Lord, that we can be confident of our hope, Lord, just as the Israelites' hope, Lord, of the Messiah was fulfilled in the fullness of time. We pray, Lord, that we would not lose hope, that even as we go through the travails and tribulations of our of our day-to-day -day lives, Lord, that we would be holding on to that hope, that in the confidence, knowing what you have done, that when the time is right, Lord, that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will return, that he will take us out of the sin cursed that he will give us those glorified bodies, that our salvation will be complete, will be, will be fulfilled, will be consummated when we are in his presence and we will rule the world together with the saints. What a glorious day that will be. What a glorious hope we have. And may, Lord, we be encouraged with this hope as the Apostle Paul instructs the believers, Lord. May we be encouraged to live for you. May we be encouraged, Lord, to live our lives in a manner that is pleasing to you, to walk worthy um, uh, of the calling with which we have been called. What a blessed people we are. We praise you. We worship you. We ask all these things in Christ's most precious and holy name.
Amen.